0: Thank you for downloading this episode of New Books and Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. For each episode of the podcast, we choose an interesting new book that takes a deeper look at some area of world sport, and we talk with the author. This week's guest is Tony Collins, Director of the International Center of Sports History and Culture at De Montfort University. Tony is making a return appearance on New Books in Sports. He was previously a guest in summer 2011 when we discussed his book, A Social History of English Rugby Union. That book, along with two other books by Tony, were awarded the Lord Aberdare Literary Prize, which is given each year to the best work of sports history published in Britain. For this episode, we are talking about Tony's new book, Sport in Capitalist Society A Short History, just published by Rutledge. This book lives up to both parts of its title. First, it shows how the forces of capitalism, commercialization, market competition, industrialization, and the expansion of finance, have been essential to the development of modern sport from the 18th century. Down to today. Second, this is indeed a short history at just under 200 pages. But the book is big in its ideas and its scope. No matter where you live, you'll likely find your country and your sport described in its pages, and then deftly connected to the larger picture of global sport. The book is ideal for a course reading list or for the bookshelf of any educated fan. As always, it was a pleasure to visit with Tony. I hope you enjoy our interview. Tony Collins, welcome back to New Books and Sports. Great, it's great to be back. So it's it's been a while since we've had you on the podcast, and in that time, of course, there have been some big events for British sport and uh, big events for uh, the Center for Sports History and Culture. So why don't you bring us up to speed on what you've been been working on at the centre in the last year
1: well as you say it's been a big year for sport in Britain Uh, obviously the centrepiece was the Olympics but also things like Andy Murray winning Wimbledon the first time a a British male has won for over 70 years and um, if you leave aside soccer um, then British sport seems to be on an upward arc and so we've been as the centre for sport, the international centre for sports history at De Montfort. We've we've been pretty lucky to be um, to be at the centre of some of these events from a sort of historical heritage point of view. And I guess some of you listeners will uh, have heard the BBC yes. Radio Four series that we did in two thousand that was broadcast in two thousand and twelve, which has been very successful for us. And it's kind of um, it, it, it's very it was very interesting to work on because it made us very aware of uh, how to communicate our work as professional historians to a broader audience. But the other thing that was very interesting was that it it caused some quite interesting debate amongst the team uh, about some of the historiographical issues. So, viewing British sport from the mid-18th century to the present day, which was really the time span of the series, was was an incredibly useful and thought-provoking exercise just from a historical point of view as much as anything else.
0: So was there wrangling over, over who then, which historian was uh, to be interviewed about uh, a particular topic then?
1: No, not, but not, in ter- not in those terms, but I think in terms of um, questions about continuity and change within the history of sport and the the uh, to what extent for example could we say that the arc of amateurism is over what what was the relationship between sport in britain in the 18th century and the late 19th century, commercialism and amateurism, questions like that. So it wasn't so much that there was a, a falling out or a dispute in the centre, <laughs> more a, a kind of a focusing of minds and re-looking at some of these questions.
0: Well, let's turn to your book, Tony. The uh, the last time we, we spoke, uh, two years ago, about your uh, your history yeah. of English rugby union, you had just started working... Uh, on the book, uh, at the time you were describing it as, as a history of modern sport, and uh, um, it's, it's titled Sport and Capitalist Society, A Short History. And uh, unlike many short history surveys, this book has a definite thesis. It's not simply an overview of the topic based on a, a survey of the literature. So so I'll ask you, what is the main argument of, of your book, and what interpretations of modern sport are you arguing against?
1: Well, the, th- the thesis is essentially in the, in the title that I, I've argued that, and to some extent, this is something that, certainly from my perspective anyway, I don't know about the rest of the time, but something that became increasingly clear when we worked on the the research for the BBC series, that sport really is a product of, of capitalist society, that as capitalism developed in, the, in Britain in the 18th century, and it brought with it a, uh, the development of a commercial entertainment sphere. Sport was very much part of that. And more than simply being another form of commercial entertainment, sports, binary opposition between winning and losing, the importance of competition, really dovetailed um, with the change in the culture of society as it switched from a feudal a um, uh, very hierarchical society, to um, the beginnings of a modern capitalist society. So sport, um, sports development is not simply coterminous with that. I don't think it's... A, it's not simply an accident that it developed at the same time. But it, in fact, was part of the process of the development of capitalism on a cultural level. Um, And I think we can see that If we look at the development of the laws of sport The codification of cricket, boxing, horse racing Three main sports of the 18th century in Britain All these from certainly the early to uh, mid-18th century Developed laws that were firmly based on The commercial development of the sport So that's the main thesis And the book tries to track that through to the present day And really it's a kind of um, well, I have to say, I was I was very influenced in writing the book by Eric Hobsbawm's, and I think it's, this is clear. I think when you if you read the book, Eric Hobsbawm's Age of Capital, Age of Revolution, mm-hmm. and, that, and that series. Uh, so, in a sense, it's an attempt to slot sport into that into Hobsbawm's analysis of the development of of modern society. Uh, and it's not a it's not a particular. It's not um, it doesn't set out to be a particularly polemical or argumentative book, although it is a book of ideas. Mm -hmm. But it does try and... uh, I, I do try and offer an alternative analysis to the idea that the development of sport is one of modernity. It's simply a tale of modernity, which I think you can see in um, probably the most uh, prominent example of that is Alan Gutman in, in From Ritual to Record. Uh, and I would argue that the, some of the things that Alan points out as the key uh, markers of modernity are actually very closely related to the development of sport as a commercial capitalist enterprise. And and I think there's there's examples. I mean, I think for example, Ron, Warren Goldstein's fantastic book on the early history of baseball in the states. Although uh, obviously Warren probably has a different analysis that I, that I have. It, uh, it it also illustrates the way in which commercialism drove baseball. And I think we can say similar things about soccer in Britain as well. Uh, and the other, I, I guess, the other. Um, thesis that the book is, is trying to differentiate, is, is differentiating itself from, is the idea, which is a sociological idea, of the civilising process, that modern sport is really a, an example of the way in which modern society from the 17th century became slowly more and more civilised. And, and I think if you look at the work, particularly, obviously, of Eric Dunning and the, the Leicester School of Sports Sociologists, they've um, spent a considerable time trying to analyse sports, and various, various sports, in fact, in, in the context of civilisation and the removal of violence from sports. And again, I think if you look at the historical record, so for, for example, boxing, the most, um, seemingly the most overtly violent sport. The way that boxing was, co- the reason why boxing was codified was not to make it less dangerous. And in fact, there's a very strong argument that the markets of Queensbury rules that were introduced in the late 19th century made it much more dangerous than the old-style prize fighting. But the reason why boxing was codified and common rules were introduced to it was simply to make gambling more effective and to make the sport more transparent for the purposes of gambling. And that's something that is actually common to pretty much all sports. In the in the 18th century, so the idea that they're becoming more and more civilized, I think uh, that sport is becoming more and more civilized. I, I don't think it stands up to the historical to the test of the historical record. So I, I guess those are the two main theses that the the book is presenting an alternative to, and it, so it, and it attempts to trace the development of sport through the development of capitalism in North America. Uh, Europe, Japan, all the way up to um, the globalization of, uh, uh, of, of capitalism over the past uh, 20 or 30 years.
0: And a good part of the book is, is devoted to sport in, in Britain, which is the case with most histories of, of modern sport. Um, uh, but why is it, in, in your take and your approach, why is it, uh, or what was it about Britain that made it the cradle of modern sport?
1: Well, th- again, this is one of the questions that I think we we returned to when we were doing the Radio 4 series, the BBC Radio 4 series, and what were the particular circumstances? Because the the standard journalistic argument is that, well, obviously, Britain is a sports-loving country, and mm-hmm. its love of sport uh, simply meant that it, it founded all these sports. But, in fact, if you look, particularly at France in the uh, 17th and early 18th century, you could probably argue that the French were just as sports-loving as the British were. A number of sports, like tennis, obviously, can be traced back to... uh, um, Their roots can be traced back to France. There are are versions of football, versions of boxing that are prevalent in France as well in the uh, the early 18th century. But I think what differentiated um, Britain... And why sport in Britain developed to such an extent and so rapidly was because the aristocracy in Britain had become transformed from a traditional aristocracy based on feudalism, based on a very um, uh, hierarchical and fixed society in Britain. Because of the English Revolution and the Civil War in the um, in 1640s and 50s, the English aristocracy had become much more profit orientated. The land had become for the for the British aristocracy a way of generating money, uh, a way of generating profit. And, therefore, that meant that their natural love of sport, which is common to probably all the European aristocracy, um, became more than simply a way of killing time. It became a way of making money. Huge amounts of money were gambled on sport. And also, it became a, a... a representative really of the way in which they saw life. It it was now about competition either um in the domestic economy or internationally and of course in the by the time we get to the eighteenth century, in the first British Empire. So the, the English aristocracy are much more um if you like profit-minded, competition-minded, than any other aristocracy in uh, in Europe, and the driving force of capitalist development in in Britain and particularly in the southeast of England, London, in the southeast, means that it becomes a tremendously rich area, and the opportunities for for leisure time and for that leisure time to be actually very profitable outweigh the the, the possibilities of commercial leisure anywhere else. And that enables British sport to, to take to take a hold both as a, as a form of recreation, but also, by the time we get to the, the wars against revolutionary France in the early 19th century, it also starts to represent, sport also starts to represent not simply um, competition, but also a form of British nationalism, which is about the success of Britain. And so once we come to the mid-19th century, we find that people like uh, Baron de Coubertin in, f- in France, many p- people in, um, uh, in North America, particularly in um, the what became the Ivy League colleges, they look to Britain to find the secret of why w- to find the secret of the British Empire, British economic and diplomatic success. And one of the things that is obviously very different in Britain from other countries is the importance of sports. And so many countries decide, well, if sport has made the British successful, we too uh, think that sport is something we should introduce to our countries or encourage in our countries. So it's, sport becomes very important to the British because it's identified with the rise of Britain to become a world power. And then consequently, in the late, later 19th century, those countries who are looking to become world powers, France... Uh, the USA and then later um, in the early 19th century, um, Japan. They look towards a British model, cultural model, to try and develop their na- uh, their national prestige and sport becomes an important part of that.
0: You mentioned women in... Uh in 18th century sport and how there were there were many more women participating as opposed to in the 19th century. And uh, so knowing something about women in 19th century Europe, that you have a, a greater division of labor between men and women uh, in, in the 19th century with industrial capitalism, uh, you have a greater division of men and women's space uh, in the 19th century. How, how did... Um, 19th century industrial capitalism play out in terms of of men and women in games and, and in sports there's a great book to
1: be written on women's sport in the uh, in the 18th century because it, it's clearly far more widespread than uh, than it was in the 19th and in the early part of the 20th century women were involved in boxing for example physical contests I'm mean, listening to I don't want to exaggerate the um, the importance of this, but certainly it's clear that there was a uh, a reduction in women's opportunities to be involved in sport in the nineteenth century and I would argue that the reason for that is because the the change in society to an industrial factory based economy placed greater emphasis on um, both men developing masculinity because one had to be hard to work 14 hour days and to go um, to, to find work uh, but women were triply burdened in their works, they had to keep house and they had to raise children and in those circumstances um, uh, particularly in the, the great urban industrial centres of, of Britain at the time, Manchester Birmingham, Leeds, Newcastle the opportunities for leisure for working class men were reduced but for women they were almost almost completely extinguished I I would argue and it's really the that burden of women of working class women in the uh, in in the industrial revolution and the the subsequent period in the 19th and early 20th century that, that meant that women had far, far less opportunities to be involved in sport. And that only really changes towards the end of the 19th century when, for middle-class women, there are uh, huge advances in educational opportunities, both in, in Britain and, uh, and North America. And for working-class women, to some extent in the early part of the 20th century, when you get the rise of um, um, factory paternalism and welfare capitalism, if you like, um, when large industrial organisations started to provide uh, some recreational facilities for women and that particularly becomes very apparent in World War One in Britain where you get the huge growth of women's soccer teams uh, which are really facilitated and promoted by the influx of women into um, uh, into the factories and their ability to use the facilities that are uh, provided that were provided originally for male workers. Uh, but uh, uh, once the male workers went to the went to fight in the war to the front, then they were available for women. So you get this: there's a huge, long. I guess, in a sense, perhaps looking at historically an interregnum for uh, of women's involvement in sport in the nineteenth century due primarily to the um, the pressures of uh, industrial society and the prejudices that that gives rise to
0: so following up on that looking also at at the nineteenth century, something you talk about in the book is uh, in the 19th century with the rise of industrial capitalism. This is also the period when when team sports develop in, uh, in Britain, in North America. So what is the connection between team sports and industrial capitalism? I would argue that, the,
1: and it's something to dispute, obviously, I, I would argue that it's really the, the organization of daily life for working class people and for a significant section of middle class people as well was based on some kind of collective experience um working in the factory leisure was collective and they went to pubs they went to music halls. so collectivity became the the way in which life was lived so team sport the idea of working in a team was was commonplace and it's interesting i think that in the from the mid 19th century from the 1870s when football and also in the states when baseball start to become mass spectator sports with roots in the industrial urban working class individual sports going to decline boxing really doesn't recover until the end of the 19th century uh, and for the working for the working class binalise boxing is the only individual game and that's uh, only individual sport um Sports like golf and tennis become very important to the middle classes and they're part of middle-class sociability. But for the working classes, both in Britain and North America and then slightly later in, in Western Europe, collective team sports, I would have come to embody something of their own experience. So one can see people working in the same way on the, on the football field or the baseball diamond. You can see people working the same way that you work uh, in a factory they're also closely associated with the uh, a sense of place that team sports again certainly from the 18, 18 and 1880s onwards primarily but not exclusively primarily, be, primarily become associated with place so there's always a home team in a football league or a nas- in a football league soccer fixture or a national league baseball fixture so you have a combination of both the um, collective experience that people can identify with and also a sense of locality that people can also um, uh, can also recognise. And particularly in um, uh, times of great immigration, which is obviously the case in, uh, uh, in the United States in the late 19th century, it's a, a great way of becoming part of a community, of expressing your identity with your new surroundings, with your new town, city, village. And I think that's, a, that's also the case in a slightly different and uh, less obvious way, uh, in Britain, as people move into the um, move into the cities from the countryside, you find it in Wales with the Welsh rugby union that uh, Welsh rugby becomes a marker of a new sense of Welshness in the the huge industrial developments that take place in Wales in the 1890s and 1900s. So it becomes both a symbol of collectivity and a symbol of place that, that people identify with, and and feeds into. Feeds into people's sense of identity.
0: Tony, you have a chapter on uh, the the origins and the spread of soccer, and and you do make an interesting point in that that uh, uh, the foundations of modern sport are well established before the most popular sport today, soccer, uh, really has it has its genesis and. Uh, One of the interesting things you bring up in in that chapter, so so the English brings soccer around the world in in the 19th century. It becomes the most popular sport uh, in the rest of the world. But you point out that in other English-speaking countries other than England and, and Scotland, soccer is not the most popular sport. Instead, other forms of football are more popular in places like the United States and Canada and Australia, but not soccer. So why is that? Yeah,
1: it's one of the great paradoxes of um, of, of the world game that um, outside of England, soccer it's not the dominant or the uh, the leading sport in any uh, other English speaking. Nation. And I think that's, and I think that, in a sense, that's the key to it. It's, it's about um, the English and cult, the the written and spoken culture of, of England in the mid nineteenth century. I think the reason why it's the case is that it's, and I think this also explains why the discussion on why is there no soccer in the United States. I think, um, I think this is the, the the reason is it rooted in the history of the development of. Um, of muscular Christianity and ideas about about how to educate young men that developed in the 19th century, mid-19th century. And you can see both in the British Empire, the direct colonies of the British Empire, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, the educational system is based very squarely on the ideas of muscular Christianity and uh, Thomas Arnold and rugby school and especially on uh, from the ideas of Tom school list, of Thomas Hughes' Tom Brown School Days. It was published in 1857, right at this very moment when the development of those societies and the United, Canada and the United States as well was undergoing a, a huge uh, educational shift and the idea that how do you educate young middle-class men to become our, the future leaders of, uh, of these nations and their empires? What are the educational principles that we need to uh, we need to implement? And it was muscular Christianity that really captured the imagination of educators because, as I argue in the book, it's essentially a form of British nationalism. That it's a way of expressing British values in a more um, in, a, in a very idealised way about how one conducts oneself, how one becomes a man. It's all about males, of course how these are, again, ideas about fair play, about being a team member, about giving orders and taking orders, uh, about leadership. All these things are are popularised in many ways by Tom Brown, by the book Tom Brown School. It becomes a huge bestseller across the British Empire and also in the United States as well. And famously, Teddy Roosevelt said it was one of two books books that everyone should read. So there's a level of identity. And that opens the door, really, to play rugby. Uh, Rugby becomes a game, because of its identification with rugby school, Muscular Christianity, and um, Tom Brown's school days, it becomes the game that is played by the local, uh, local elite. So by the time that soccer becomes the dominant sport the dominant football code in England, which is only really in the eighteen eighties, up until the the up until around about eighteen eighty, rugby is probably the dominant and more popular code. But by but by the time that soccer becomes established as a as an important football code in its own right in the eighteen eighties, well the English speaking world has already adopted its own football. And it very rapid in Australia you get well, you get both rugby uh, played in New South Wales and Queensland, that becomes very, very rapidly adopted by the uh, by the elite schools, and then it comes down into the working classes. In the southern states of Australia, you get Australian rules football, which again starts with the elite based on ideas about about muscular Christianity and its applicability to um, to Australia. And in Canada and the United States, rugby init- is a, rugby is initially adopted. And then modified quite quickly in a similar fashion, really, to, to which Australian rules modified rugby rules at a slightly earlier. period. So by the time that soccer becomes a, a major, a major sport, th- the place that it occupies in becomes to occupy in European and uh, South American countries is already occupied by um, by some variation of the rugby code, if not the rugby code itself. So paradoxically, you have you know the. The game that's invented by the English is only, it's is not really, it's, it is played, but it never becomes the dominant sport with which the English other English-speaking nations are identified with. And the great paradox of it, uh, or the great irony, whichever way you want to look at it, is that it's soccer that really becomes the internationalist game. It's never seen as a particularly, it's never identified with, one, with any particular nation. It becomes, with the formation of FIFA in 1904, which is uh, not created by any English-speaking countries. In fact, the British don't really like FIFA and um, don't really want to be a member. Um, by the time that FIFA's created in 1904, then soccer is really pretty much independent uh, of its British roots, and that enables it to, to spread very, very rapidly, particularly after World War One, throughout Europe and also across Latin America, in, in the same period. Uh, so it's a really, and I think what, one of the things that it highlights, I think, is that, and again, this is one of the things that came out when we were, the centre was working on the, the BBC Radio 4 series. It's very difficult to look at one sport in individual isolation. You, you, to understand why Soccer spread around the world, or why American football dominates in, uh, in the United States, or why Australian rules is very strong in Australia. You have to view it in the overall con- historical context but also in a comparative context with the other codes of football uh, and other and other sports to really understand why these peculiarities as they seem, have arisen
0: I want to jump ahead to the 1920s Tony and do uh, you have a chapter looking at that period this is This is when we see. Uh, really, really great rise in popularity of, of sports, mass spectator sports in uh, North America and in Europe. Uh, you see the building of massive stadiums, the prominence of sports in popular media. So, what was it that that fueled this growth of mass spectator sports in the 1920s and, and into the early 30s?
1: World War One obviously fundamentally changed changed the world, particularly Europe, uh, where most of it was fought, but. The world as a whole. So there's a and so in Europe you get the destruction of the old empires, particularly the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and the rise of nationalisms and the, those countries that were in the, the prison house of the Austro, of the Habsburg Empire are now seeking to assert their own national identities and their independence. And sport is a is a uh, is an easy way to do that. And again, the um, one of the ways in which. Uh, Countries after the 1920s looked to assert their independence and their national identity was through the adoption of sport and by its um, and by playing their other their, their other rivals and so it's no accident that really the hotbed of, of soccer in the 1920s and 1930s uh, was Austria, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, uh, to a lesser extent Germany, Italy, uh, all these countries that had uh, undergone profound changes in World War I. The other important uh, reason, which is intimately linked to, to that, is the huge importance of the media. I, I think it's almost, well, I think in the book, and i am probably regret this, I think in the book it's an iron law of sport that its development is intrinsically bound up with the development of media. So in the 1700s, sport arises at precisely the same time that the newspaper uh newspapers developed. daily newspapers are first introduced in britain in the early 1700s sport feeds into that and becomes both the subject and the object of um uh, of newspapers um and in the 1920s in the uh, well in the beginning of the 20th century you get the rise of mass circulation dailies across europe and particularly in france you get the rise of mass circulation sports dailies and they promote sport themselves and that continues, that's given a huge impetus by World War I. And of course, the great technological development that uh, becomes a phenomenon in all countries in the 1920s is radio. Which really adds a whole new dimension to sport. One of the things that makes sport a unique form of entertainment for the spectator is the way in which you can get involved. You know, anybody who's been to a... Baseball game, football match um, cricket match they, they be, you become involved in it you 're you 're part of the action but that that was unavailable to the majority of people who couldn 't go to matches, but radio brought it into people 's homes. The impact that radio had across Europe, across North America, I mean, for example, again, and it's uh, it's something that lots of historians have referred to, is the impact that um, Joe Lewis winning the World Heavyweight Championship had on uh, on Black America in the 1930s, because you could listen to Joe Lewis winning on the radio. Um, You could become part of it, despite the fact you were thousands of miles away. So that had a big impact on me on, uh, on the, the growth of sport in europe, and there 's some very interesting work going on in gem that' been done on Germany in the 1920s that, that shows just how important sport became in the Weimar Republic, partly as a mark of, um, of modernity. This is you know sport and particularly football was part of how uh, this transformation that was taking place in the world was. Uh, it was it, This was the modern world um, uh, exemplified. Uh, but also later, as political and social upheaval became more important from the late 1920s, early 1930s, and the, and the rise of Hitler, the growth of fascism and nationalist movements in Europe, sport once again becomes a, 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 a tool of statecraft of political importance, uh, so the clearest example of that is obviously the the use that the Nazis put the Olympics to in 1936. But it also becomes a political battleground. So you have the rise of the, the what were known as the Workers' Olympics. The social democratic and communist movements had their own sports organisations, which in some countries rival that of what we would see as uh, traditional modern sports. So in in many ways, the it's the the, profi- the revolutions that took place not simply on a political basis in in Russia and so on, but in social life and cultural life that led to sport having this huge huge importance in europe um, and also I think we can make the same point in um, in the states as well in north America that the the rise of radio, the ability of teams to travel i mean football you know, Notre Dame towed the west coast. You know, popularising Notre Dame as a, as a national football team rather than simply a college football team. The 1920s, the, the technological revolutions, the political changes in the 1920s, really both facilitated the the the, the development of sport uh, and its popularity, but also meant that sport could be used by uh, the state for various uh, for various purposes. Uh, not all of them particularly um, particularly wholesome.
0: So following on that that period of growth uh, for sport in the 1920s, I want to jump ahead to the, the last chapter of your book, which deals with the massive, massive growth of sports throughout the world in the last 20, 25 years. And and you make a key point here in the, in this chapter that that the growth in sports, um, looking in the, the 80s, 90s, into the 2000s, the growth in sports recently could not have come about Without wider shifts in society, so when we look at the the various signs of sports expansion since the 1980s, what larger changes does that reveal? Well,
1: in a sense, it's almost a return to some of the things that gave rise to sport in the in the 18th century. Obviously, the most there's technological development, there's the the growth of digital satellite broadcasting uh, has helped to facilitate. Um, the uh, the rise of sport around the world. It's it's. I, I, I agree in the book that the, the, the globalization of sport. It, it's really about media um, because th- there hasn't been a fundamental shift in the power bases of sport. But you're now one is now able to watch. Pre- if you have the money to do so, you can watch pretty much whatever sport you want in whichever country of the world you want because of the the growth of satellite broadcasting. But I think more fundamentally that what what happened from the 1980s, and if you like, the rise of the Thatcher- the Thatcher-Reagan era, which brought in, um, which really saw the end of this, the old social democratic welfare consensus, sport became uh, the metaphor of sport that it had in the. Uh, Uh, 18th century that sport is really about competition. It's about uh, a society that consists of winners and losers, and the important thing is to be a winner. Um, That became much more the dominant narrative of uh, of the West in the 1980s and 1990s. And sport, as it rose in importance through to due to technological changes and the importance of television, sport dovetailed with. That with that uh, ideology, it's sport obviously again because it's it's a binary thing. It's about winning and losing. It, to some extent, it played into that worldview, the you know, what people call the neoliberal worldview, that it's really um, competition is what drives society. That's what produces a healthy society, and so sport was able to, um, whether consciously or not, was came to play a central cultural role. In, in that new world order that uh, Thatcher and Reagan uh, created from the 1980s onwards,
0: Tony, we're almost out of time, and uh, I want to ask you about uh, something that's been in the news recently. It's it's uh, didn't make it into your book. Your book was already complete and uh, and already out before these events, and and that's the the massive protests that have been in Brazil recently, arising from this this popular dissatisfaction with with government spending. For next year's world cup so how would how would these demonstrations enter into your book if you had the chance of uh, thinking thinking ahead do the second edition of your book uh how would how would you include the demonstrations in in brazil would they change any of the observations you made in your last chapter or would they confirm your findings um, I'd argue that they actually confirm what I was
1: talking about in the last chapter of the book because one of the things that that concerns me and, and other people as well within sport uh, is the way that sport has become a particularly the mega events like the World Cup and the Olympics uh, to some extent the way for soccer championships as well that these mega events have really they've become um, I, I guess they've be, become a um, a way of sort of lauding capitalism uh, through sport and investing huge amounts of money into short-lived sporting events that have no, uh, which at best, the benefit to the mass of the population is is, is highly disputable and in many, what I would argue is is almost negligible. Uh, And certainly there's a debate going on at the moment about the legacy of the London Olympics. And the money that the nine billion pounds sterling that was uh, that was spent on the Olympics and the, the actual impact that's had on the, the local population. I think in Brazil, obviously, that's m- much more. Th- that issue is much much sharper because of the huge poverty that the, the majority of Bra- the Brazilian population uh, um, live in. So the, in, in a sense, it's the um, uh, it's that contradiction between you know the natural um, desire. of... Most people, to see sporting contests, or take part in sporting contests. And the way in which sport has become used as a, a way of demonstrating national prestige, national prowess, and that has led to um, that has led to countries spending billions and billions on uh, short-lived sporting events that appear to have very little, uh, very little, if any, benefit for 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 the population. I think if you go back over the pretty much every Olympics over the last twenty years, uh, you look at the FIFA World Cups. Uh, again, South Africa in 2010, it's difficult to find any benefit that the South African population have had from the vast amount of money that was spent on the uh, uh, the 2010 World Cup. Um, so I think it's, it, it's something that was inevitable and was bound to happen that sooner or later the population of a country is going to say, wait a minute, we've got very, very important social and economic problems and, and we really afford to spend so much money. On what is after all short-lived, uh, ephemeral sporting event. So I think that the um, um, and in fact, there's also um, I've noticed that there's the the question of the new Red Wings Stadium in Detroit, where you've got a similar a similar issue there. Um, and I think these issues will become more and more apparent um, as the economic climate um, throughout the world, not just in uh, in South America, as the economic climate becomes harder. The more people will question the the necessity of spending so much money on, on sporting events, sporting stadium, and these um, high prestige events that, that uh, really bring no benefit to the, um, uh, to the working population.
0: So, uh, Tony, I know I shouldn't ask a historian this question, but uh, what do you see in the future for sport? So, so revenue from sport keeps going up. Ticket prices keep going up. Television ratings keep going up. Do you, do you see a limit or, or even an end to this growth in the, in the popularity of sport? I th- it's a, it's a difficult question.
1: Clearly, if you look at the uh, the TV contracts that have been signed for Premier League soccer in the UK, for NFL football in the um, or college football in the US, they continue to rise and rise, and it's clear that they've not reached their limit. And uh, developments like the Indian Premier League, the attempts to establish. Um, Sports in China mean that I see arena football is even trying to establish itself in China now. Uh, it shows that there's a set um, uh, of the people in charge of sport and the people in charge of media. Doesn't the market has reached its its saturation point yet? And I suspect that will be true. That, that that will continue to be true for at least the uh, immediate future. Despite economic recession, TV companies are still prepared to pay billions for, for sports rights. And I guess that's one of the reasons for that is because sport is such a compelling form of entertainment that, you know, people um, in hard times, one of the things that make you forget about the problems that you've got for for two or three hours in, on, a, on a Saturday or a Sunday is sports, or whether you, you watch it in your own home or you go down to the pub or the bar to watch to watch a match, at least that sports uh, endlessly compelling nature means that it will always have an appeal. I think what we will see, though, is probably more and more demonstrations like we've seen in Brazil against mega-sports events and against um, the development of huge uh, super-stadiums. But in terms of um, the sports boom, ending anytime soon uh, I, I don't really see it I think the, the current configuration that we have in the world today of sport will continue at least for the immediate future perhaps if things get worse on a much, much worse on an economic basis uh, then things may change but I think fundamentally sport is one modern sport is one of the, the cultural creations of, uh, of the modern era and it is so compelling. It is such a unique form of entertainment that its, a, it's appeal will, will not wane. And it's, in some form or another, like the cinema, the other great invention of 20th century modernity, it's always going to be with us. It's always going to be part of human culture.
0: You've been listening to an interview with Tony Collins about his book, Sport in Capitalist Society, A Short History published in 2013 by Rutledge. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects from psychoanalysis to East Asian studies. If you like what you heard here, please follow New Books and Sports on Twitter at New Books Sports, or friend us on Facebook at facebook.com. Slash new books and sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thank you for listening and enjoy your week.